All right, guys, welcome to Better Globally. Another day, another episode, another very special guest, Sal Greco. Thank you for coming on. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Ben. It's an honor to be here. It's an honor to be with a day in Miami. <laughs> yeah, thank you to a day in Miami for being the media sponsor over here. So, Sal, tell me real quick for the viewers as well. I already got to know you a little bit. Who is Sal Greco? Just give us a brief introduction. Uh, Sal Greco is a Sicilian American, proud of it. I'm a guy that was born in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, so I'm a Brooklyn guy. And I'm a 14-year veteran of the NYPD. Uh, I was there. I had an unblemished record. Uh, I was a you know, rough and tumble kind of guy on the job where made a lot of arrests. But the, apparently someone in the NYPD was irked at my politics and who I'm friends with. And uh, that's why I was uh, falsely terminated in my in my estimation from the NYPD and that's why I'm in a current litigation against the NYPD and a city in New York but I don't let that deter that to deter me yeah we're gonna touch on this case briefly but before we get into that just tell me I think it's a big decision why did you decide to become a police officer well I want to be a police officer I think when I was younger I really wanted to be in the FBI, I wanted to be a federal agent, and uh, I had family that was in that part. You know, they were in the FBI and the, and the feds, and they told me, I don't know if you really want to go down this route. Uh, I was always one that hung around my, my dad a lot, and uh, my dad was, uh, he worked for a food distributor. Yeah. So that's how I know a lot of these pizzerias and restaurants up and down the East Coast. So I was more of a you know, let's say a, a man about town, like a people's kind of guy. And that's how I grew up. And federal agents are kind of like, I wouldn't say they're people's people. They're more of a, you know, they're kind of like separated from things, mm -hmm. which is how, what I've learned in the NYPD when I was a cop, I was the same way. You learn to like almost separate yourself. You kind of like the word is detached. And I'm more of a people's kind of guy where I need to be around people to know what's going on, how, how people are doing, how they feel about things, because that's, that's how you get a, get, get a grasp on, on things. So I wanted to be a federal agent, and that, I, I never really went down that route. I ended up, somebody close to me says, hey, uh, I became a cop, what do you think? Yeah. They spent six months on the job, then they were telling me what they were doing day to day, and he says, why don't you apply? And ultimately, that's what I did, and then uh, I think six months after I applied, uh, they, they called me to come to the police academy. How, how old were you when you started? Uh, I was 26 when I first got into the police department. I should have been in at 25, but there was a little glitch with the <laughs> paperwork, we'll say. Yeah. And, uh, but I was 26 when I first got on the job. Okay. So you said that you wanted to work as a police officer instead of working like as a federal agent, just because of this human connection. The, you, it's much, it's, you get, a, it's, you'll always have a little bit of detachment, whether you're a, a cop or a federal agent or anything in law enforcement. It just happens because it's a crazy kind of life almost. You, 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 you're always 24 seven on the go. You're always a cop 24 seven. You're always a federal agent 24 seven. So, you know, who you hang around and what you're doing could affect you. You could also, you know, end up that you get terminated for stuff like that, what, what you're doing and who you're around. So you're always like, it's almost like a detached life where the people you once knew when you were a normal guy, 
maybe you can't speak to them or you can't be around them because you're worried. If are, you know, is your job going to say anything about it? So you have that aspect, and then you're going to see things in your career you may or may not affect you. You may see people die in front of you. You may have to go to a crime scene. You might have to guard a dead body. You might have to guard someone that is absolutely reprehensible, that committed murder or whatever. You, you have to guard this person and protect this person from getting attacked by a mob of people that want to do something to this guy because of what they did. You're going to go through many different avenues when you're in this. And sometimes what you sign up for and what you think you're about to enter is not what, it, what, what you think. And it actually is either worse or better than what you expect. So policing, I think the life of a cop is probably more fun than, let's say, the life of a federal agent. Yeah. I just thought about federal agents all the time. Is they, I always saw them as having big cases versus a cop. But cops do have big cases also. But, the, you, know, the, you know, as a kid growing up, you see, oh, the federal agents take out all the big bad guys, you know, and hate to say it, and today it's become politely, completely politicized. The whole thing is politicized. It's all about politics. Yeah, unfortunately it is. But, I mean, I don't think there's much we can do about it now, but it's okay. Depends who you vote for. <laughs> that that too. Uh, so tell me, how how did your expectations change? So, for example, when you, before, before you became a cop and after you became a cop, how those, like, your expectations and reality, how did those work together in a sense of, did you expect something else from the job? And then when you got on the actual job, or like, oh, damn, I didn't expect this to be like, like that. I, I guess when I first got on, I, I wanted to make a difference, which I think I did. But as time goes on, you realize, you know, even the job itself is highly political and the people you might ruffle feathers with are not just the people in the street. It's actually the cops that work with you. Yeah. This guy is jealous of that guy. Joe doesn't like John. If you do something that is wrong with John, Joe is going to try and do something even worse and backstab you by going to a boss. It's, it's, it's like, it's high school. That's what, I can't describe it better than that. Welcome back to high school, only you're 27, 28 years old. And you're like, what the hell did I get myself involved in? I'm there to be almost like a Batman, like a vigilante. Like, I just want to go out there. I know who I have to go after, these bad guys. You know, I'm even humane in how I go about it, but I don't need all this supervision and all this crazy stuff. Like, I, me personally, here are the ground rules. Here's a gray shaded areas. Here's a gray shaded areas. And I work in between this. I won't go past the gray shaded areas just like Batman. Yeah. But if you're going to come to me, we're worried about how you look. We're worried about the way your shoes or they shine. We're worried about, uh, you know, what you ate, you know, you're eating in uniform, all this kind of crazy stuff. Dude, just let me go out there. I'm going to lock someone up and come back. Like, that's the job, right? Or is it, I don't know, what, what, what exactly are you expecting from me? Because that's what I thought going in, and then you see how things really are. So that's kind of like, and you have to, one thing you got to learn in life, and I learned it very well, no matter if it's in, you know, your life, your job, politics, you have to adapt. You have to be quick on your feet, which sometimes people had a problem with me about that because I'm very quick on my feet. Yeah, it doesn't take much, you know. If I have to change direction, I'll do it because that's how I was taught. And you know, now I was taught, but how I learned as a cop, you have to be quick on your feet because 
a couple of seconds could be your life or some poor innocent civilian's life. So you have to be quick on your feet. That's one thing the NYPD taught me. Okay, makes sense. On the Day in Miami podcast, you mentioned that you beat the record for like the most amount of arrests in the DWI. Yes. Um, so what do you think was the key to beat those records? And you did it also for two years straight, right? Yeah, for two years straight, I was I held the most arrests for an individual officer for a DWI arrest. So what I would do is uh, uh, I was in a unit that we focused on, you know, drunk drivers. We wanted to pull as many drunk drivers off the street as we could. That's a, it's a common practice, you know, common problem out there. You know, if you're driving and, you know, you had something to drink, maybe you shouldn't drive, you know, maybe you should really think about, you know, the repercussions of something like that. People, you know, I have a cousin that he was a cop and he passed away because a drunk driver hit him head on on the highway on, uh, in, in South Florida down here. So, you know, it's not something that, you know, I'm looking at, oh, you had a drink. If you had a drink, don't drive. This is something that I find inexcusable. And I always have because I don't think, I'm not, listen, have I had alcohol? Yes. I'm not going to be a hypocrite. Do I drink it now? No. Do, do I, have I ever really drank a lot of it? No. I'm not one to abuse this and not, I'm not a fan of alcohol. And I understand people do it socially, but that's why I'll have a, a, a bottle of water or something. So this is not something I really like. I'm not going to judge somebody for it, but. Drinking and driving is a, is a big thing. So when we get back to how I had the number was, uh, I used to lock up anywhere between at least 10 or 12 people for DWI individually inside of one quarter, which is three months out of the year. Every three months is a quarter. There's four quarters in, uh, in a year, we'll say. So that's how I ended up. But I had over 40 in one year and close to 40 in another so you're almost averaging one every week and a half, we'll say. Yeah. But there were weeks where you got four. I might have four in a row, four nights in a row with one. So this was something that we, A, took pride in as a unit. B, I went out there and said, I'm going to set an individual goal because I'm not just going to sit here and be in some unit where I'm just going to sit at a desk, put my feet up in here and say, this is great to get paid to do nothing because I know guys that like to do that also, and that wasn't me. If I sat on the desk and I wasn't processing an arrest, then you're right. I'm sitting on the desk because I had too much overtime. Because that's another thing is it, you reach a cap, like a point where if you make 130 hours in a quarter, you, they don't want you going out there making any more arrests or getting involved in anything because that means you'll be over that number and you'll end up on a list of the highest earned uh, officers and they don't want that. They want everyone to at least stay in the same range. So 130 hours was the cap. And sometimes I could, if you get that on one week, you're not working the other 11 weeks of the quarter. I mean, that's how it worked. So this was something I took pride in. I also did it as a regular cop when I wasn't in a unit, but I finished, I believe, second or third that year. That's so this impressive. Was, and I was in Brooklyn. I had like 47, some, some crazy number. And I was, at that time, answering radio runs also. That means if you call 911, I might have to respond to that. So how do I make an arrest when I have to do that and this? Yeah. And in the unit, it was just, I'm just going for DWIs. I'm not, there are other guys out there. That's why we had a unit because it was a DWI enforcement unit in the traffic division of NYPD. So I did it for two years straight. Me and my partner actually were one and one A or one and three. 
as a unit, as a as a uh, a duo, we were number one. So that was something like I took. Batman and Robin. Yeah, I took. I, we took it. We took pride in it. Uh, my partner was a little more like, listen, uh, you know, just as long as I get to 130 hours, I'm happy. But we were we were locking up some. Okay, I mean, they're just drunk people, and then there were some really drunk people. Yeah. Some people, and we ended up in the court. I never lost a case in the courtroom, so everyone was convicted of it. I made sure that every I got dotted, every T got crossed. That's how you have to be. And also, I was one that no matter, I, 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 cops should think like this, I always thought like a lawyer. So you never, it's very hard to do, but as you're affecting an arrest and you're arresting someone or you're pulling someone over, you need to think like a lawyer. So if you're in a courtroom, the lawyer or the defendant's going to turn around and go, well, uh, you know, officer, in my case, officer Greco. So you saw my client do X, Y, Z. You're stated in your paperwork, X, Y, Z. So every move I made, I always wanted to be thinking like, what if, I was asked this. What if I'm asked that? What and that's how I operated. And that's why you didn't see if there was a human error, there could have been one or two or three in my career, but there was never anything on the table. Because that's how it is. When you arrest someone, an officer's mistakes are what the defense attorney will, you know, zone in on and say, okay, we're gonna go with this angle. He, you know, there's something if there's a slight error, not guilty. Any reasonable doubt. That's what it takes. There never was one with mine. Before the body camera and with the, the body camera, the body cameras actually helped out in the arrest situation. So uh, that's something I took pride in, but I never got an award for that. Or, or, or no one ever- We'll get you a trophy. Yeah, nobody ever, <laughs> nobody ever said, Mr. Greco, you know, you're leading the- I only learned of this because by the numbers, you could pull them up and it showed I was the number one. So it was something that, yeah, it was it was good while it lasted, you know? Yeah. I, I went out and took pride in what I did. And the citizens of the New York City can say, and they put their they put their head on the pillow knowing at night that uh, what they nicknamed me at the time in Brooklyn, they called me El Diablo, was out there trying to look for the DWIs and trying to take these guys off the street. That's awesome. Okay, so what you mentioned that thinking like a lawyer, okay, what if they ask me this? I can see how valuable it could be because you're you're just preparing yourself. Like I know what they're gonna ask, so I'm gonna make sure to prevent that and not gonna make it happen. Exactly. It's like it's almost like repetition too. So when you're very oh, that that too. When you're used to the same thing, you keep you know it's the same paperwork. It's the same. So you know how to do this. But you remember, you cannot have even the slightest slip up on anything. You wrote one word wrong. You said one. You said that, you know, when you write on there, at TPO, AO, so that means at time, place of occurrence, AO, arresting officer states, yeah, I observed whatever the license plate. So you say the license plate of a car. If that license plate is off one number, there's an error. Uh-oh, here we go. Here, here, here the defense could say, my, that's not what my client was driving. You understand? So you you need to make sure. Little things like that. No, leave no crumbs on the table. And while you're in the street, it's also important. When you're in someone's vehicle, now remember, you have to voucher this vehicle or release, really want to release this vehicle back to someone since the defendant's not the owner. When you're looking through the vehicle, you have to make sure everything's documented, what you're doing. Because 
he could state or the, the defending could state you, you took something out of the car. May or may not be true, but believe me, with an overzealous civilian complaint review board and these clowns in internal affairs who don't do anything all day and need a case to you know justify their existence, somebody makes a claim, they're going to look to hang you. So you have to be dotting your I's and crossing your T's. I made it all those years. I have 320 arrests. You don't see anything on my record. There's nothing there. And I'm sure some of the uh, underlings in the NYPD that were desperately trying to find anything they could were probably looking at it saying, how did this guy get this far and there's nothing there? There's just nothing there. There's no the more they looked at it, there was nothing there. There's nothing there as far as my work. It was excellent. By all standards, you know, I shouldn't have made it that far. All those arrests, I should have been probably sued 20, 30 times if you look at the way they sue people today. But there's nothing there because I always went through things meticulously. In fact, the DA's office stated that, that they said, we like that you, well, you work a very meticulous and everything on there is almost perfect. It's just unheard of how you, you're very meticulous about it. And that's how I, I pride myself on things that, if you're going to be serious about something, that's how it has to be. And I took my work very serious. Okay. So tell me, what, what was like the key in the sense of finding those arrests? Is it like a specific area? Was it specific time? Or you were, you know, with your experience, you were able to tell, okay, this guy looks a little suspicious. Let me like follow him. And then you see, I don't know. He starts crossing the lane and you know, okay, he's probably drunk. Let me pull, pull him over. I tell you, in the time period when I was a cop, number one thing I would always look for is the area. The area you have to look at, oh, are you frequenting? Are there nightclubs? Are there lounges? Uh, is this the route you would take to go from the lounge to the highway? Most drunk drivers, I realized that a lot of them had a propensity of getting caught near tunnels bridges and close to a nightclub leaving or going in, like either they're leaving the nightclub or they're parking to get to the nightclub one, one that was the, the to catch somebody who was just on a long drive home or whatever that was not you know that 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 wasn't as common as per se somebody who was parking a car you know trying to get into the nightclub so Exits and entrances off tunnels and bridges seem to be the easiest route. That's where you catch people that are drunk. I don't know why. It just that's that was the the numbers were high when it came to that. So I think that that's where I would hover around. And when I was in Brooklyn, I worked in Brooklyn and uh, Coney Island or in Crown Heights, hovering around the lounges were the easy. If you're just in the area, there's a high propensity you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna get a drunk driver. Just because the numbers at night, anything after midnight, as Tom Coughlin, coach of the Giants, once said, nothing, anything, there is nothing after midnight that is good that comes about <laughs> anything good after midnight. So that was like the that was a that was a term I just used. You know, after midnight, Tom Coughlin used to say, you don't, you don't, you know, nothing good come happens after midnight. So if you're driving right after midnight, there's a high propensity that that person may be drunk. Okay, makes sense. So tell me, how many times have you had the gun pointed at you? Uh, there were a couple of times that there were uh, rounds fired in and around me, per se. 
there was an incident where somebody was firing at someone else in, uh, when I was a rookie, and um, this person took off with this gun in their hands, and then as they were entering a building, threw it up on the, I believe it was like a, a I don't know if it was a windowsill or somewhere was on top of where the door was. They eventually got the gun. The gun was in a bag. So they threw it. It was thrown in a bag or something on top. He ran into the um, facility, and the other officer who was a lot quicker than me. He chased him and actually caught him. So that was one incident, and I believe they were trying to shoot at one of their rivals. So that's how it makes this very dangerous. So you could just be standing there, and this was a big thing in the NYPD. Under Ray Kelly, he had what was called impact. And in impact, he would post foot posts in different areas on different corners of the street, which on a city block in New York, there could be a lot of crimes that they take on, on, on a city block, or there could be crimes they take regarding, you know, grand larcenies, things like that. So that's what the, it's, it's presence that deters crime. That's, that was Ray Kelly's terminology, which was pretty effective. Presence, but, what do you mean? A pre, so if, if, the likelihood of somebody trying to take a car or enter a house and commit a burglary or, you know, assault someone, the propensity of that with a cop standing there is not going to be the same as if there's nobody standing there. That was, yeah. I mean, this was at a time where people respected cops. You were still living under a, you know, somewhat of a law being enforced and there was still de district attorneys that were following the law. That's not the uh, New York City of today. But at that time, that was the what was going on. That was the thought process, and it. So when you're standing there on a corner like we were, and it was we weren't congregating. It's just there was two cops stationed there, like you know, standing in one corner. I was in another corner with the, another cop, and then some guy is just firing at some guy right behind you. That his rival, the two rival gangs, that might happen. And this was the situation we were all, you know boggled down with, we'll say. And uh, that incident happened. Uh, that was one incident. There was another incident. But this guy was shooting. They were shooting from a rooftop that no one could ever finger where this was. You you kept hearing bullets being fired up in, into the sky. And then you would hear somewhere around you, beep, beep, it would land. So they never caught this person. They had aviation up. They had the, the helicopter up. Uh, but it was someone that was on a rooftop somewhere in a in a in a high rise in Coney Island that was just firing, probably up in the sky, and then a bullet would. Remember, if you shoot up in the sky, that bullet comes down. Hopefully, it doesn't come down on somebody because it could still kill you, you know. But that you know, nobody told this character wherever it was. Have you had a situation that made you want to say, "Not nah, this is not for me. I'm quitting this. I don't want to risk my life. I don't want to get shot." I don't, I don't, I have to like reconsider my choice. I'll tell you, it is a lot of times. I, I took one thing. I don't know why it was, but I used to, there was a lot of times I would go to work and say, I never cared if I went home or not because I was devoted to making people feel safe and saying, when I go to work every night, I have to make sure that I know that I made a difference, meaning Somebody was in handcuffs. That means I took somebody that was bad off the street and then everybody could sleep well knowing that I did this, that I'm out there defending them. They're sleeping. 
I'm awake and I'm putting away guys that, well, they're sleeping, want to come and do something to them. Or they don't want to drive drunk and go run over someone that belongs to their family. You know, some poor family members walking the street. Here's a guy that had five beers, doesn't know any better, hits him and just keeps going because that's happened too. And, you know, so I always had that. I used to almost go home and I used to say to other cops, I don't really care if I sign out. And people thought it was crazy. And I was like that for a few years. And then I started, you know, becoming more of a veteran going, you know what, this, maybe you should take a step back and say, you know what, I don't know about, you know, living a live free or die hard mentality. It's more of a, okay, let's pick our spots. We'll find when we have to go, but you know, fine. But like when it's time to go home, just go home. Don't sit around saying, I want to stay out there 24 seven. Cause you know, it, it, that's, that's not what you're supposed to do. And I, I was doing that for a, a little bit of time when I first was a officer. So what do you think kept you going in those moments? Was it always the thought that I'm making a difference? I'm locking up the guys that could potentially kill someone's family or, you know, drunk yeah. drive? I, uh, as a cop, I got to tell you, I know people love going to casinos, right? You go to a casino because you get a rush, right? You're throwing yeah. You're gambling, right? Some people lose their shirt. Other people have put their mortgages down. You know, crazy stories over the years. My rush was being in the street. It's an adrenaline rush. You're out there and, you know, you're something. I mean, when I was a rookie, you know, I was on a rooftop with binoculars looking down, saying, look at that. Look what that guy's doing. You know what? I jumped six rooftops to catch one guy. I thought he was dealing drugs. He was actually doing what was called a, a three-card monte. He was gambling which is illegal at that time. And it was made legal the very next day. That was the best part. That rule that they had was made legal the day after I made that arrest. So, but I mean, like that kind of stuff, I had to, had a, you know, adrenaline rush. You're out there and, you know, you're, tr you're doing all these things and you, you, it's like, you're like a guy, you're kind of like the predator in the movie, the fictional movie, the predator. Predator would run around and his trophies would be the skulls of, the people that he conquered. He was kind of like a hunter and he was hunting whether it was humans, eventually find out it was the aliens from the movie Alien. And I viewed it almost the same way. It's like each person is like a notch on your belt of you, you have an arrest, you took this person. And then the other part is you try to correct their course, meaning this guy necessarily isn't a gang member. This guy necessarily isn't a really bad guy. He's just, you're correcting his course because once he goes through this, Chances are he won't drive drunk again. Chances are he won't be gambling again. I mean, just be smart about your life and you won't end up. So I'm a course corrector as well. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you get the rush of you caught somebody doing something they shouldn't have. And now you get to be the guy that you're the bearer of bad news almost, you know, and you correct the course. And I took pride in doing this. And so that's, that was, that's what it was. And I, 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 I didn't take pleasure in ruining anybody's day or their life. It's just, it is what, what it is. You have to be the bearer of bad news, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. And like, there's definitely a good way to think about it, that you are correcting their course. Because you know that yes. after you catch them, there's it, they're less likely to do whatever they did, whatever, drunk driving, gambling, shooting, whatever. Yeah. Some people just need like this, they need to see the reality. And like until you stop them, they live in a dream. They don't really care. But then yeah. reality hits and they have to. And you want to say, you know, the, the, the ideal days actually 
if you go out there and you come up empty-handed because you never want to see, there shouldn't be any crimes and if things were perfect, everyone would just get along and everything would be normal. But, you know, as you could tell every day, that's not what's happening. Yeah. And at this time when I was a cop, you know, and I was out in the street bringing something back, as long as you're not fabricating it either, because I'm a big believer, you, you don't do that. You don't like create something that didn't exist, kind of like what you see in these political prosecutions. I'm not like that. I'm for real crime, doing something bad, and you, you know, you have to affect the rest. That's that's your job. That's what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be protecting people, not throwing people in a witch hunt, and then we're gonna, you know, I don't like Joe. I'm gonna bring him in. I'm gonna find something on him. Like that's what they're kind of doing today. I don't believe in that. So. That's where things have gone south in the world of policing today. And I wasn't a big believer in that. I always said, we have to catch what's really going on. We have to do what's really going on or stop that from happening, whether it's corrective course, which is writing a summons. People don't like summonses, but you know what? You're not going to be lighting that fire and singing Kumbaya and, and, and smoking weed in that park that's, I don't know, 10 feet from a whole row of houses where people can't sleep because they're hearing you play your music and they could smell your weed in their house with their doors locked and their windows closed. That is something that you have to correct because that little scene becomes five people, next night becomes 10, becomes 15, before you know there's a mini concert. Then the next part they're going to do, they're going to fight each other because they're drinking. Once two guys drink, they start yelling at each other. They're going to assault each other. Before you know it, there's going to be a, a, a guy with a knife. This is what you try to correct. That's what broken windows was about. You're correcting course. We're not targeting people because of their race or their ethnicity. It's, I don't know how many people are here. I don't really care where they're from or who they are. They don't belong here. Here's a row of houses. This is a community. You're a park right across the street. What are you doing in a park that's closed after 9 p.m.? doing these illicit things that affect how these people go about their daily business because they have work in the morning. I mean, unless you want to pay and to own their house, then you could do what you want. But these people have a life to live. You don't belong here. You don't even come, you don't even live in a the neighborhood. These guys will come from different neighborhoods to go do this. This is like one, you know, co a corrective course of action here. There's other areas they would... They would go to the other side of the beach. There's a beach in Coney Island, and people would be there and just enjoying themselves, just standing there, and it's after 9 o'clock, and then here comes the criminals. Now they're coming and they're trying to rob the guy or something. You know, they're, they're, they're casing the guy. They don't belong on the beach. I understand this guy doesn't belong on the beach, but neither does a crew of you guys that are we know who you are because you're always in and out of the precinct. You're always getting arrested, and now you're coming here because you're looking to prey on this one poor guy who's not from the area, he's just there visiting, and here you come trying to, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna set this up, this guy up for a crime. These are the kind of things that would, would go on. These are the things we try to correct course. This is how broken windows work, you know? You write a summons that stops this from happening. You write a summons that'll deter this guy from doing it again. He'll hopefully tell his boys not to do this, and, and that's how it kind of worked. Politically, some people took this the other route to say, Broken windows, it's all about race and ethnicity, and it's not. Anything can be used in any direction in life. 
If I want to use something in a destructive manner, I can. So was this used at certain points that may look like that by certain individuals? Of course. But as far as I, me personally, and the people I work with, we used it as a course correction device. You're not supposed to be on the beach. We're going to write you for that summons. You can't leave your car unattended because if I don't write you this summons, just a, like a week later, somebody would leave their car unattended and they stole it. They took this guy. Somebody went in this guy's car and took the car. And I, I don't even know if that classifies as a, as a GLA, which is a grand larceny auto, because you basically left your keys in ignition with the car running. I mean, these are the kind of stories you don't hear that were happening. So broken windows stops that. You write this guy a summons. He'll get upset, but he'll never do that again. So that the next incident that I tell you that just happened won't happen. Because there was a guy casing that area saying, I'm going to wait for the wrong guy to leave the key. And he took the car. And it happened. It really did happen. He could actually, I remember when this happened, I, I just couldn't believe it. You're like predicting the future, basically. Yeah. You want to stop that. You want to stop the worst possible thing from happening. And that's one of the, the, the course, the course reaction. So you have to correct the course by reacting to it before it happens. So that was how we, we handled it. We're saying, look, the car, you leave the car on, you're going to get a summons. That's it. Because if you leave the car unattended, this can happen. And then it finally started happening. There were actual little guys that were watching us and watching these people leave the car unattended. It's just, you know, it's crazy. And that's all you're doing with broken windows. It's not used. It's supposed to be used in the manner I'm explaining to you. Not by, I'm stopping this guy because of his ethnicity or his race. It was never It was never about that. Got it. So tell me, what, it, what was your favorite part about being a cop? I guess the thrill. Like I said, <laughs> it was a rush. You miss the adrenaline rush. I don't even, I've been to casinos. I don't even care what goes on there. But when you're in that street, and uh, still to this day, I get that, I'm in the car and I'm, th I'm getting those flashbacks. And when I pulled the guy over and you knew he was drunk and now, you know, you got one, you know, like I had that feel or, you know, chasing after somebody that, you know, did something. I had a guy that took a, he took something out of the car and he started running. And I, you know, I, I'm a gym guy. I'm in the gym every day. And I'm a, I was a runner. So I, I chased after this guy and I would cat, I caught him. I, he took whatever it is out of the, the car, didn't even belong to him. So these are, these are things that you miss that action, that, that thrill, you don't have it anymore. I have to kind of like find other ways around it. Politics is fun. Like politics could be fun, right? But politics, as my friend Roger Stone says, politics is theater for the ugly. And, uh, I'm not ugly. I don't, at least I don't think I am. People say I look like a, a certain wrestler. So I would, I don't know if politics is the exact arena I want to be in. I'm just a guy, kind of guy who likes to throw his hat in different things and get involved in many different things because I like being around people, like I said. But the NYPD, I miss the thrill of the street because I was always a street guy. I liked being out there. I liked people. I, I would go to, like, my friend's restaurant, so I would hang out and have an espresso at my friend's place. And then on the way out, I caught a drunk driver. It's happened many times. Like, that uh, also happened, like, just by chance so these are things you miss people you did have a lot of people that liked you they would come up to you 
that's all gone now. You know, that that was the thrill of that time period as a job. As far as today, though, I, I wouldn't want to be in that uniform. Uh, I, right now, it's really, really getting ugly in New York City. It's really political. I came from a time where it wasn't as political and it was still fun to do these, you know, be a cop. Now, I, I don't know. I, I, I'd probably tell you, maybe you're better off being a janitor. That's a big switch, though. Yeah. Uh, so, Quieter. So now, on the other hand, what was your least favorite part or, like, the hardest part of being a cop? The hardest part of being a cop is you have to be on your toes 24-7. And I'm just not saying that because your life matters whether, you know, your life, it's it, it could change in a, in a blink of an eye. It only takes a couple of seconds for somebody to do something to you, shoot you, The chances of that, though, when I was on the job, were not as high as, per se, the cop next to you making ridiculous allegations against you or somebody you know. Because this seems to be the, the worst part of being a cop is not the, the ammo that you're going to take in the street from some perpetrator, some, some animal in the street. That you expect. You don't expect the in-fire, the firing from the inside from your own people. That's what I was victimized of. I, if it wasn't for somebody writing a fagazi letter, because that's what it is, and you're stating that I'm working as security, which I wasn't, and there's never been proof of this to this day. There still isn't, because I never was. And that I was, uh, I wanted to have a civil war in this country, which was another thing. They wrote in a blank letter. There's nobody's name on it. The, whoever did that, the second letter, the first letter we know, I know the cop. The second one was a blank letter. I mean, look, this is definitely someone that's inside that little circle of whoever it was that didn't like it. If you don't want to put your name to something, or if you put your name to something and it's find the, found to be false, you should be held criminally liable for this. If you have a problem with someone, just go up to a man-to-man face-to-face. Don't be running to internal affairs or saying this guy threatened me, you're the big bully, be a man. That's how things were. But now in today's world, I don't know, because you see people with green hair, purple hair, people that are crying. I mean, some of these guys, I don't know if they should have been a cop or they should have ever applied to be a cop. And then you see that also in the street, where you see these same cast of characters doing the same thing in the street, as well as being on the job. So it's a different world, and I'm kind of like a dinosaur at this point, you know, the way I, I think and the way I handled business. And I see this now, and I'm like, I don't know how I made it. I made it, and of all the crazy things, I'm getting, ter I got terminated for some fugazi thing that literally every cop has either done, been involved around, or... Right now, you currently have the entire upper brass doing it 24-7 in your face. You're saying that you're hanging out with somebody that A, they don't like, B, likely to have engaged in criminal activity. I and mean, that's just a broad brush. That could be anyone. I could say here, Ben, I think, can commit a crime. Therefore, Officer Joe shouldn't be hanging around Ben because I believe, I believe, not you, I believe he could be perpetrating a crime in the future. What, the, what, what is that about? See, and that's what I'm saying. It's all arbitrary rules. I mean, this is not, and, and they apply in different ways, and now everything's become political, so God forbid if it's anything political involved, you're, you're going to get fried. 
I mean, this is, you know, the politics of it is just as bad as the regular politics you see on television with politicians. It's, that's the NYPD now. That part I don't miss. That's the part you want to stay away from. Recently, I think I read on Twitter that it always used to be innocent until proven guilty. Guilty, But I think now it's changed. So now it's guilty until proven innocent. Would you agree with that? I agree with that depending on who the person is because once again, it's <laughs> yeah, arbitrary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, we know the only person that is guilty and has to prove they're innocent is President Donald Trump would be the first person that comes to mind. He's guilty until proven innocent. According to anyone, the majority of these people on uh, X, which is Twitter, anybody in the media, you go CBS, NBC, ABC, even Fox News, they'll, they'll, they'll all jump on the fact they all think Trump is guilty of something. You're guilty of something. He's guilty of something. He's guilty. So they're just going to throw all these indictments on him until something, whatever it is, can possibly stick. You'll stack the courts. The courts are all political. The judges are all politically appointed. They're all friends and they're hobnobbing with certain lawyers. Those lawyers are in the, de the Justice Department. They work under the, the president now, Joe Biden. Everything is highly partisan. I mean, this is not what this country was built on. I would think that George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin, they're all rolling in their graves, seeing that they were trying to prevent. They saw this coming all those years ago and set all these rules and put all these rules in play so that this wouldn't happen. And yet these guys are finding a way to subvert this and do that. And they just sometimes outright just trampling on all these rights and all these rules and laws that they were implemented forever. They're just trampling on and saying, well, we're the law. And we've seen this in other countries, correct? We've seen them in, I don't know, Soviet Union, Cuba, uh, recently Venezuela, these are countries that are coming from a communist background, and that's what you're kind of seeing today. It seems very communistic to say, show me the man, I'll show you the crime, because that's what they're doing with one person in particular who's just nonstop being thrown out there that this person is guilty, but what have you really found? Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not just Donald Trump. You know, recently there has been some allegations for uh, Russell Brand or like Andrew Tate, they all uh, already the allegations of rape that happened like 10 years ago. And suddenly now when they speak against the system, suddenly everything comes out. So yeah, it, it's ridiculous the times we live in. So the next question is, do you think or how we could change it? Or do you think it's too deeply entrenched in the system right now that it's impossible that we got to stop becoming so political and start thinking, like, rationally. That's hard to say because it's like, uh, how does society, what direction we're going? Because, you know, the laws of allegations or how things go, I mean, uh, there's like, uh, there's a rule, there's like a length of how long you have to actually prosecute crimes. So the statute of limitations, how does this work? I mean, I've been out there where there's legit cases of a sexual assault and then there's the Fugazi sexual assaults, but nobody ever goes after anybody for that. So nobody wants to put their name to certain things either. 
And I'm always one where if something just happened, just say it. I'm, I'm going to tell you, like, I'm fighting Eric Adams, the New York City mayor, and the entire New York City Police Department and the city of New York, right? I'm one person. But if I was to take the stance of I can't win, I'm just one person, I can't, then it's over before it starts. But I'm doing just as much trying to punch them in the face kind of politically the way they were doing with me that they do to others. And you have to stand up to the bully. That's the whole point. So you can't be afraid to either A, defend yourself, or B, go on the attack. So if you are a victim of a crime, by all means, you should just come out immediately. Don't be afraid of this guy is a chief, that guy is a mayor. If you're going to go down and you're going to lose or, God forbid, something happens to you, go down swinging right there on the spot. I was a victim of this crime. This happened today, whatever. This person touched me. It was yesterday. Do it right there. Don't wait. If you're waiting 10 years from now, I don't even know if, A, that would be a question of whether or not it happened. This could be, you know, that could be a question of motive because you're saying this happened 10 years ago. I mean, this is, you, you're clouding and muddying up the waters, I'm saying, versus right away, just say it. Because then that would mean, you know, you're saying that something happened 10 years ago and it might be a motive or 15 years ago. Or in, once again, Donald Trump's case, somebody says something happened 40 years ago. I mean, at this point, I mean, you know. Who remembers that? Yeah, I could say as a, you know, 40 years or whatever, 30 years ago, somebody did something to me. They hurt my feelings. Can I charge this? I mean, like, this is what I'm talking about. And uh, that's, you know, if you, the best way for me to describe it is, especially because I was a cop and I know all these lawyers, if something happened to you, say it right away. Don't, don't waste any time. And I understand people, women are afraid because they're, you're finding a power structure. You know what? Make that allegation. Do what you have to do. Get it on paper, and then you work from there. Even if now, if this police department, let's say, are complicit in doing nothing, now you have something to work on personally to sue someone and go after this individual. But if you do nothing and wait 10 years, it's like, I don't know. You're kind of muddy. It looks like, what is your motive? What was the motive of that? And... There might be cases this happened, and maybe Russell Brand is, I don't know. Could this be true? Could it not be true? You got to wait till it pans out. It seems very suspicious. I would say going forward, is anyone out there that was a victim or is a victim, of some, do not be afraid to right away say something. Because if you don't, you end up in this scenario like this right here, Russell Brand, where they'll say, what is the motive for this person? All these five victims that are alleging nobody knows their name. I mean, that's another. That's thing. another thing. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. So you can't be afraid to put your name to it. If you're gonna say something, put your name to it. We're not. I mean, what are you afraid of? Conspiracy theories? You think someone's gonna come out from a bush and do a, a JFK on you? I mean, like, like you gotta like. You can't be afraid. That's what I'm trying to say. You can't be afraid to to do something. I, I look. I filed a. Uh, a complaint yesterday against Eric Adams, his police commissioner and his uh, deputy mayor of communications. He once again used his police department for a political agenda. They were on X, on their social media, posting political videos of Eric Adams stating how his zoning for housing, the way he wants it done, that wants it passed, 
So it's a political agenda of his is now being front and center in the NYPD. Now, Ben, that violates the one New York City police patrol guide, what they terminated me for. They said that I violated it and I got terminated. Well, Ed Caban, the police commissioner, is letting his police department, he's ordering them, whether it's him, whether it's Fabian Levy, his deputy mayor of communication, or Eric Adams himself, is using public servants to further his political agenda. That's a violation of the patrol guide. It's also a violation of the New York City Charter, Chapter 68, subparagraph 9, sections A and B, where it states very clearly, no public official shall order or coerce another public servant or anyone underneath them to push a political agenda. Can't be afraid to make that, you can't be afraid to make that complaint. I made it very public. That was me that did it. So that should be your example. Don't be afraid. You see something, jump on it. No hesitation and no fear. Your, your enemy, your proponents, your, they bank on your fear. They work off of your fear. He's afraid. So we could push him around. That's how they operate. So don't be afraid of making a claim if it's true and putting your name on it. That's all I'm saying. Or, or you're going to end up in a scenario like these, these women with Russell Brand and Andrew Tate. They, you don't even know who they are or what's going on there or what's the motive. Yeah. I mean, you know, some people, especially people in power, it seems like they don't play by the rules that that they made or like are made for them. Yeah, I, I that's the thing. I, and I'm a big one rule for all, right? Can only be one standard, which kind of applies to my situation. It can only be one standard. And again, it's like if I, again, you can't muddy the waters by saying you don't like, I, you, you can't muddy the waters saying something happened all these years ago and you're coming out now, why? I remember years ago, like when the mob was around, people were afraid to say things. And now, 30 years later, you have a bunch of different people now. Who was an informant? Who's the, and they make all kinds of accusations. That, that now, the waters are very muddy because you don't know what's true or not. Where were these yep. guys back then? And of course, there's always motives. So you could say this guy said whatever he said to not go to prison. This guy said what he had to say, so he didn't go to prison. And he's money in the wars with all these allegations and claims and all this crazy stuff. So that's what I'm saying with allegations and how they take it. I know the media love to jump on. We don't like Russell Brand, so we're going to run with this. It could turn out to be true. It's just that when this, if this allegation occurred back 10, 12 years ago, why wasn't anything done 10, 12 years ago? That's what, all I'm trying to say. Or if there's nothing, there's no record of this, and now, or you're generalizing off something somebody said, which kind of happens also. I mean, Howard Stern was a guy that used to push this kind of stuff, and now, allegedly, now he says he's woke. Whatever that was going on there, I don't know. But but saying so so Russell so Russell Brand situation where if this happened, like I read somewhere about 2012 or 2013, then. What happened in that year? Why was nothing done then? I mean, he's just a, a celebrity, right? He's an actor. He doesn't hold, he's not a police commissioner. He's not a, he's not a mayor. He's nobody political. Why didn't you come forward if this is true? Yeah, this thing is, this is what makes it look suspicious. Kind of like Brett Kavanaugh 
when he was going to run for, uh, he was a Supreme Court justice. All those w women came out. He did this to me when I was 16 and stuff. I mean, you're like 40, 50 something now. This looks highly motivated for some reason. We couldn't put our finger on it. And then it ends up being, uh, was that even true? I don't think so. But that didn't stop what? People, there were 20 people pounding on the doors of the Supreme Court, remember? Or, or Congress? Of course, that was legal. January 6th ended up being that there, everybody there was is a criminal in their eyes. But the people that were trying to destroy Congress there in the Capitol areas, we don't even bring that up anymore. So you see how you're playing by two sets of rules? That's the bigger issue. But if you have an allegation, why won't you say that right away? And you saw that also play out with Kavanaugh. We saw it play out also with, uh, with Trump or during his 2016 campaign. This is just crazy. Just honesty is the best policy is what I say. Yep, I agree. So let's say I want to become a police officer. What tips would you give me before I get into it? You need your head exam if you want to be a police officer these days. 2023? These, uh, this does not favor somebody to go do this. You got to be very brave because, uh, you know, that pendulum swings both ways. You know, I was always one. I didn't want the pendulum to swing at me, but it'll swing back out. But that pendulum is like permanently stuck on a police officer. You, you, you're all over the spotlight unless you're protected, we'll say. Whether it be politically, whether it be by the boss, uh, you know, it's, this, is not, uh, this is not something I would recommend to anyone. You want to do that, I'd say go, go be a lawyer. You know, lawyer being, being a lawyer, being in, you know, because a lawyer, you have different avenues you could get involved in different things or be involved in different fields. As a cop, I mean, you're already enemy off the bat. People hate you right away. They hate you. And there's no way out of that. People are going to like you, but it's it, the, what it seems is the small crowd that hates you has a bigger voice. And the one that speaks the loudest in this country rules the roast, it seems. So... If they keep hammering the same fact over and over again, this cop X, Y, and Z did X, Y, and Z. We don't like him because he's bad. I mean, in New York City, they they have a, a 50A disclosure, which is, uh, so you go on there and in 50A, they had to put down any complaints that a cop has right to the last second and to put that up on a website. I mean, I'm, I'm up on there too. And you'll see that there's none with me. But the other people... You'll see it says 10 complaints, 20 complaints, 15, 5. They've been sued. They were found. Uh, there was a settlement. There's not a settlement. All this stuff is out there. Do you really want to put yourself out where you could work your whole life? You're almost about to retire. And then they make some outrageous claim. And now, oh, well, you can't retire because we have to look into this. And guess what? This is 2023. So. That claim has to be true because we hate cop because that's how it operates, especially in New York City. I mean, I don't know how it is in other districts or counties, maybe kind of probably similar down here in Miami, but New York, that's how it works. There's a civilian com complaint review board, 
And these people have the authority to try to say, I want to take 30 vacations days, days from you because my client, you, you were just saying that it's not worth becoming a cop in 2023, become a lawyer. That's right. So, like that. so I was saying, okay, so I was telling you, I, if I was a cop, if I was, if I was asked, should I be a cop in 2023, the answer is going to be no, especially in, in New York City because of the Civilian Complaint Review Board, the way they make complaints. I mean, look, in all honesty, I don't want to give anyone any crazy ideas, but in New York City, you could just run up on any cop and make any accusation. It'll be, they'll take it serious. There was a time when this was laughed at, but not anymore. Because, you know, New York City's gone woke. I mean, the NYPD's woke now. So they're going to take anything and try to use it against you unless you are protected. So if you're in the in crowd, in New York City, if you're Eric Adams lackey, you know, then you're okay. But if you're not, and you're not part of that in crowd with him or the police commissioner or the chief of the department, you're, you're screwed. They'll bury you. And I don't know if you really want to put yourself out there. Being a lawyer, much better chance that you have different avenues to work with. And also you can go the federal route as a lawyer. And you could be in the police department as well as a, as a lawyer. As an advisor, you could get a job. But as a cop, you're doing a lot of grunt work that could end up they use against you. So it's not something I recommend anymore. Unless you go into a, a no-name town where nobody even, you know, people respect you and, you know, it's very close-knit. Maybe these rural towns, but not anything major. New York, L.A., Chicago, stay away from there. Uh, so to everyone listening, if you're thinking about becoming cop, now you got an opinion of a veteran. Maybe it's time to reconsider that. You probably still have time. Yeah. And okay, but now all the politics aside and all whatever is going on right now, do you think New York City is like the best city to be a cop in just because there's so many people, there's so much stuff going on, so much also like diversity of people from all around, all, all around the world. So it seems like New York City could be the most interesting to do the job there. But what's your opinion on that? New York City, NYPD's lost its luster. At one point, yes, it was probably, if you were a New York City police officer, anything where you went in the world, people looked at you almost like a celebrity because it was such a prestigious position. It's no longer that. Uh, you know, if I'm smart, and I, like I said, if you want to be on the job, you want to be a cop, I would tell you the smaller the town, the better it is. If that's what you really want to do. If you want, if you want the glitz and glamour, you want to roll the dice. Look, you could end up where you're almost like me, sitting in front of Congress, and you didn't even do anything wrong. Why? Because you're in the NYPD, and that's how things could roll downhill real quick. So, like I said, that was a job that had a lot of prestige to it. Technically speaking, if you were in Suffolk County, which is not that far away from New York City, it's in Long Island. You'd make a lot more money and have a lot less responsibility. And on top of it, you don't have all those eyes looking at you, looking to say, let me look this guy up. I can make a complaint. How many complaints does he have? You have all these idiots running around with their cell phone trying to do the, what do they call those? TikToks? The, uh, they're not even, they, they call like they're trying to inspect the police and do these random things. I, I'm not one of those guys either. I, I don't believe in that kind of stuff. I'm more of a, in the moment, you, you capture people doing things. If you want to film cops from a distance, you're not in their face. That's what you should be. You could do it, even though the cops are filming themselves. 
but your video might shine a different light or a different angle on something. But to actually go in front of a cop and take his, I want your badge number and I want to see for no reason other than you're doing what they call an audit. That's the word, audit. That's, I mean, are you getting paid for that? I want to know, do those guys get paid? Or you just have like a YouTube channel and you're looking for people to monetize you? I don't know what that's about, the audit. Did people run around doing audits in the 70s when uh, the Knapp Commission was around and Serpico and those guys? I don't remember that going on. It, it's all now. Now everybody wants to be Instagram and YouTube famous, I guess. I, I don't know. It's all for views. There's not like much thought behind it just because, oh, I'm going to be so brave, record a TikTok, come up to a cop and start the audit. Yeah, because th it doesn't make sense. The audit thing, I see that a lot in New York and the NYP. I'm like, what is that about? You could just w watch things unfold in the street and tape things from a distance and you'll find out who was at the scene. Going to a precinct and just trying to film cops for no reason other than you're saying you're auditing an order on them, what is that accomplishing? You're not going anywhere with that other than you're trying to create a situation where they'll put their hands on you. That's the only thing I can think of because yeah. this serves no purpose. You want to order people in the in the event of an action, meaning they're making an arrest, they're pulling someone over. Now you could kind of see if there's anything going on. But to just run up on a police person, I don't understand what anything's going wrong there. I, I don't get it. I, I, I've seen a lot of that in the last couple of months, and I'm, I can't put my finger on what that's really all about. Unless they're getting paid or looking for a lawsuit, meaning they hope the cop puts their hands on them. Which Eric Adams will pay out, by the way. They seem to want to settle all those cases, but when it comes to mine, they want to put four lawyers on and are trying to pump the brakes on everything. Isn't that convenient? Damn. I want to talk to you about two, I would say, I mean, I wouldn't say. They are con very controversial issues. So the first one is regarding New York City. What's going on with all those immigrants coming, illegal immigrants Illegals. coming to the city? And, you know, the city is just literally just housing them, paying for everything from the taxpayers' money. I read that for all the housing and all the other costs, it comes up to like a million a day. million a day comes up to 30 millions in a month. And that's like over 100 billion in a year, uh, 120 million in a year. All from taxpayer money. Honestly, my numbers could be lower than they actually are. Maybe. I don't know. But what's your take on that? Well, what's happening there, obviously, is very political. It's a political thing. It starts from the... The, the first part would be on a federal level. Uh, your pre president, Joe Biden, and his administration have a direct impact on this because they could just close the border. They could enforce immigration laws. There are federal laws on the book that you can't be here illegally. There's many things you could do Joe Biden is not doing. So he's the number one culprit in this and his administration. They're not enforcing the law. They're not acting on this. And they're just saying, okay. So now you take a step back and say it's all in New York, right? So they go from Texas to New York. So Catholic Charities is waiting there. The Catholic Church, that is. They're... they're sending buses to pick up these people. They're coming from Texas. So you're right. The governor has the right there to send them all over the place. Because why should Texas have to deal with millions of people that they don't want, that they're being forced to take because your president is sleeping and is inactive right now? So he's busing them up to New York. And now when they're in New York, 
they want to hide behind this right to shelter law. Because in New York City, if you're homeless or you're in need, there's a decree that was put in. It's called right to shelter that states you have to shelter these people in a shelter. They never said anything about illegal immigrants. There's been no action on this for a long time. I mean, this was going on years ago. Nobody said right to shelter for illegal immigrants. So they're hiding behind this saying we have to because of this quote-unquote law, which is not a law, it's a decree. And it was actually written that way in a court decision yesterday by a judge that it, right to shelter law is not, it's not a law on the books and it's, uh, you haven't shifted any illegal immigrants into the shelter for 18 months prior to this. So why is it all of a sudden a law now and it wasn't a law then? But in political standards, the governor has a little more say in here. So Kathy Hulk was the governor of New York. Politically speaking, uptown, the upper towns of New York. See, she won her election by six points. But let's say, now New York City is 8-1 to one or 7-2 Democrat. I don't think they're really smart. They just vote one way. They don't really care. A Democrat couldn't be charged with a murder, a robbery, an assault. He's running for office. They're going to vote him in. They used to say if Trump did, it's actually if a Democrat did New York City, the Democrat could be a, a convicted, multiple convicted time felon they'll vote for him because he's a Democrat. It's just, I'm sorry. Unless I'm wrong, prove me wrong in the next election. But Kathy Hochul is the governor. If Kathy Hochul wants to ship the illegals around, she can. She's the one that says, I want them in New York City. And the surrounding counties in the upper part of the state they, uh, like Erie County, they shipped some illegals there and a couple of rapes happened. So that head of the county in Erie County called Eric and said, no mas, not happening anymore. Eric said, okay. He tried Rockland County. That guy put him in court and said, the head of Rockland County who was a cop with Eric Adams, unlike Eric Adams who was an empty suit as a cop, this guy was a real cop. He was in the street. So he tells Eric, I'm going to put the, I'm going to go to court. And if you try anything stupid, I'm going to come there and strangle you. Cause that's how we cops talk to each other. He got an injunction. There was no illegal sent to Rockland County. Everywhere he looks, he gets, he tries to be a bully. He says, he calls everyone a xenophobe, all these little, that's Eric Adams whole MO because he was like that as a cop. And then when you fight him back, whether it's in the courts or they rule against him, he goes away. Like a little coward, he hides in the corner again. The big bully is gone. So those illegals are staying in New York City for one reason. Number one, what you say is a contract, there's a kickback, as Curtis Lever would say. That Roosevelt Hotel, as I'm learning, they're supposed to be like the housekeeping there, and they get all the, there's a contract where they're supposed to get all these meals and all this kind of stuff, but it's being subcontracted. It's different people than you expect showing up there. And I know because I have a source there and it's sending me a video and there's an empty table with just empty plates and uh, like napkins and there's nobody sitting down. Where is all this stuff going? Where is your money going? I'll tell you where it is. It's a kickback. I guarantee you Eric Adams somewhere is making some money on this because yeah, that man has been doing that his entire life from when he was a cop until now. But from back to the Kathy Hochul aspect, if you're running a, a state where you barely won by six points or five points, and you know that 
upper the upper regions of New York City or New York State are Republican. And Suffolk County, Nassau County, that's real close to being Republican. They have Republican congressmen and congresswomen. So would you want to risk shipping illegals to these counties where they will probably revolt and will remember this, and when the time comes to vote, all the Democrats would be out of power because they're going to vote. Those counties don't have this all this corruption in it like New York City does. They're going to vote you out. So what's going to happen is Kathy Oakle had to come to the decision with Eric and say, well, Eric, you're a mayor. You're nothing to me. Uh, we're going to send the illegals to you. We're going to keep them in an area where, like I said, even if somebody was out on a camera saying, professing they've murdered 100 people, but they're a Democrat, they'll never move them and they'll be in office forever. So keep them in a concentrated area where you're always going to be in power no matter what, because if you start spreading them around the state, you're going to vote against Kathy Hochul. So Kathy Hochul is going to make the right political call, keep in one, one little area, New York City, where she'll win no matter what. If she's running a re-election in, in, I believe, four years or six years or five years, uh, Kathy Hochul's going to get re-elected. Why? New York City would vote for her no matter what, no matter how many illegals are there. If she sends them upstate, those counties that voted for her, like Albany or Syracuse, they might flip because then they're going to say, oh, so you'll want to send them here? And there's your answer. That's why they're going to be in New York City. So it's a highly political thing. I see my friends out there, Curtis Slewer and John Tobacco and Scott Labedo and John Matlin. They, they, they fought off the whole Staten Island thing. That's going back and forth in the courts. The people out in the street, I love seeing that. If I lived there, I'd be doing the same thing. They're protesting all this stuff, which I see NYPD acting a little bit, you know, like wise guys with these protesters versus how they treat other protesters in other areas. So I don't know if Eric Adams or Ed Caban are involved in that, but so so you want to protest this, you want to make your voice heard, you want to lead the country in saying, no, we shouldn't have these illegals in this county. They're right. But as far as a political decision, Kathy Hochul is doing what's best for Kathy Hochul, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. I expect, in fact, New York City, I think, would probably get an even bigger flood of immigrants, illegal immigrants, just because one... Someone's profiting somewhere from this. In fact, they're trying to audit Eric Adams from the New York City Council because he doesn't want to show how the money or whatever's where the money's going from this, where the the relief, but they got money for this. Where's it going? I don't know. Eric knows. He's not showing anyone. They want to know. That's a problem. You see how this works? Is everybody reading what's going on here? New York City needs to be smart. Eric Adams up for re-election in two years. If Mickey Mouse from Disney came out of nowhere as a cartoon and said, I am running against Eric Adams, that's who you vote for. But they won't. I guarantee you, I know how New York City is. And it's so corrupt that you'll see all kinds of shenanigans pulled. And we'll see how it happens. I think in a primary, he'll, he'll, he'll probably win a primary, even if it's close. And it'll be a Republican where I hope Curtis Sleeva runs. I would back Curtis Sleeva in a heartbeat. But again, in that city, it's seven to two or eight to one ratio. And like I said, even if someone was con convicted of a felony and they committed a felony on, on camera, these people vote that guy in because, oh, he's a Democrat. It's just one party rule in New York. Expected to get worse. That's what I'm trying to tell you. And it's going to stay in a concentrated area.
hopefully it gets better. But from what you say, I mean, I see with my own eyes, whatever is going on, it's just so ridiculous. It's... All this corruption and everything. Uh, it's sad to see, like, especially since New York has always been like the global city, you know, if there's one city that everyone probably heard of in the world, it was New York City, very prestigious. Shiny city, city on the, uh, shiny, a shining star in a city or something is the saying with that. I don't, I don't know. I, I grew up in it. I tell you, it's not what I, what I remember. I mean, even little Italy is reduced to a lot less than what it used to be. And, you know, they, they treat those people there terribly. So it's, it's one thing after the other, you know, it's just one thing after the other. So the second controversy I want to talk about is was in 2020, what happened with George Floyd. We don't really have to go into the details. So whatever it was right or wrong. My thing is, um, since you are a cop, you know, after this happened, they were defunding the police. And then I heard a podcast, I think uh, it was from Jacko Willink, you know, he was like an ex-Navy SEAL. And he was saying that that's actually a worse move because the problem is that since maybe police doesn't have enough funding, they're not able to train the cops properly, you know, to maybe give uh, check their mentality in the sense of, you know, they don't have enough resources to be able to put the cops for the test to actually see how they will react in certain situations and train them even more because if they were more trained, maybe those acts of violence and overusing power would not happen. So what is your take on that? Do you think defunding was the right move or what's your perspective? I don't think defunding the police is the right move. You want to at least keep the funds the way they were. I mean, look, you want to you wanna punish an entire country for the for the actions of a couple of people, that's kind of sick in my mind. I mean, look, you did what they did. They convicted those guys, wherever the case may be with that. That's where it should end. To now hold other jurisdictions responsible for something that these individuals did, that's, that's again, that's a like a gang mentality where it's like a, it's a mob mentality. The mob rules over everything. That's not how, is that what this country was built on? I don't think so. And I don't know how you cut the funds off for policing because you do need them for, you know, you need to train cops. They need to know what's going on. Things are always evolving. You know, the, the the people on the street don't just sit there and go, well, we've always been arrested for these things. So we're just going to keep doing it. No, they're getting smart. <laughs> and then they have people on the inside. You might even have corrupt cops helping them. You might have some police commissioners helping them. So you, you need the funds to keep that at a bare minimum going taking this away we're only who's going to suffer that law-abiding citizen is going to suffer and i just think it's like they the planned collapse of the country is what's happening here but the people once again some of these people are asleep some of them are very asleep they don't want to watch anything they don't want to do anything they just want to have a beer and play baseball that's coming to an end i'm telling you right now you think it's all fun and games. It's coming to an end if you're going to do that. You need to be smart and think on your feet, just like I had to. I mean, I remember I was out there first day as a cop. I was like, what the hell did I get myself involved in? And then I just adapted to what was going on. And I always adapt. That's the way life is. You must adapt to each situation and every every punch that's thrown your way. Otherwise, we're going to just gonna sit there and say, punch me in the face until I don't have one left. You don't do that either. So I see that as, as the issue. 
like I said, I don't think it was right that the whole country, is, you know, every police department was suffering for the acts of a few individuals. I'm not into this mob mentality stuff or, you know, I'm in a group with 10 people. So one of the people in the group massacred somebody while they were, uh, you know, home. So now the other nine gentlemen have to pay the sins. But no, it doesn't work that way. I'm sorry. Sorry. That one, the people that did that, they paid them the heavy price. A couple of guys are in prison now. That's it. Why does this now focus on, well, I remember I was a cop and like, well, they're going to protest in New York. Why? What does this have to do with what happened in Minneapolis? I can't even drive there. You, you know how far away it is from New York City? But somehow it became New York City's issue. It became a Los Angeles issue. It became... We have, obviously, there's a lot of money, there's a lot of funding involved in having these guys organize to go around and create chaos. That's what happened after that, right? So now you're saying, uh, this happened, so let me have the right to burn down your town. Because How did that work out? By the way, there was a building in Portland, it was a federal courthouse, I believe, that they tried to burn down with active federal agents in there. They were alive. They, you know, they were in there breathing. And they were surrounded by these anarchists. Uh, I don't see them being treated the way you treat people that were waving a flag on the lawn on a certain day in D.C. two years ago. Just want to point that out. That's another thing, you know, I feel like people are just starting to lose their rationality and just think like a smart person, to say the least, but. They live in a different time. It's a different. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm from the 80s. I grew up, you know, I was born in the 80s. I'm only 41 years old right now. And uh, it's, a, you know, I've lived like, I feel like I've lived two or three different lifetimes where things are just changing so quick on you yep. from where it was. Yep. And that was basically what it was. You, you want to bring back the 80s. That was the magic of Trump. Make America Great Again is bring back Reagan, the Reagan times of how the economy was good. You know, I'm a, I remember my family... We only profited in the 80s. Business was great. A lot of people made a lot of money. Reaganomics, it was called, right? And Trump was doing the same thing. But no, you have to come and destroy it with all this other nonsense in the middle. And I hate to make, like, go back to politics, but kind of like, but that's what, what you've done. That's what I kind of saw Make America Great Again as. It, it's actually Reagan's line was Make America Great Again. So it, it's, that's the mirror. That's what you people saw. Everything from Reagan till Trump was a disaster. Whether it named the president, oh, everything that was wrong happened in that time period. From war to, uh, to there was a lot of war. There was a lot of war. The Patriot Act. You had the Obama years where everything became about race and gender and all this other this stuff was never around. Other countries laugh at us, and it's down to po politics. They're laughing now. I mean, you got a guy that can't even stand up there and doesn't know where he is half the time. And, you know, I don't know what they're pumping this guy up to keep him up. But he's just, this guy needs to just fade off into the sunset and go to, you know, retire, enjoy his life. He had 60. But I've noticed that in politics, these guys just don't know when to quit. Yep. Kind of like Michael Jordan retired, but then he came back and he played terrible on the Washington Wizards. I don't know if anyone remembers that. He did not retire as a, as a Chicago Bull. Michael Jordan played his final two years out of retirement on the Wizards and was a shell of what he was. I don't know if anyone remembers this. The, 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 the line is when you leave, you leave and don't come back. 
And some guys just, I don't know. I mean, I could take a guy, I could use a lot of examples of people in sports that just don't know when to retire. Same thing in politics. Mitch McConnell's like 90. And I think he had a mini stroke on camera. No, not just one. It happened yeah. like a few times. Sorry. I mean, it should be a rule or a law. You physically can't do this. You can't do this. This is like, Mitch, you've been there forever. Maybe you want to like sit on a kayak or something on a boat or you be in the water somewhere and enjoy what you've done in your life. Not, you're still there. It's, you're 90. What is it you're clinging to, power? Yep, probably, most likely. That's why it was always a rule in the NYPD where you have to retire when you're 63, right? You're forced out. I say everything across the board is 20 years. Why? What are you doing hanging on in your 50s or your 60s to a position on a job other than you're, you're profiting? Or there's something, there's something you're not be able to put your finger on. The only thing that I understand that people do it for is divorce. They were divorced. They have children. Okay. But, you know, a guy like, uh, you know, these generals that are in the military forever, and then they become highly political. And then you find out when you look at their financials, they're worth millions of dollars. How? You were a public servant. How did that happen? People don't ask these things. 20 years, that's all you have as a, as a public official. In Congress, two terms. In, in the Senate, two terms. The president, two terms. That's it. This lifetime, the only thing that's lifetime is a judge in the Supreme Court. Other than that, how has everything else become like a lifetime appointment? Because, you know, it's very easy to stay in, in office as a senator if you've been there more than one term. Second term you're in, then you, you're in for life almost. It's like impossible to unseat the guy. So why are you there for more than two terms? Though? What is it? What is it that you really, what's your objective? What's your goals? Guy's 90 years old. He can't even, the guy had a stroke on TV. I mean, that's, that should be an alarm. Guy's done. I mean, help this guy. Same thing with Joe Biden. Same thing with Dianne Feinstein. They're, they're in their 80s and 90s. This is like alarming to me that people want to stick around past their prime for what? And they do the same thing in the military and the police department. I say make it 20 years and any military or police department is your max. That's all you can stay for. I don't care what rank you are, you retire on the spot. You want to come back as the head of it, you're a civilian, and even as a civilian, you only have X amount of years that you could do. You can't be there forever. Otherwise, what you're seeing in NYPD and in New York City today, that's going to happen everywhere. All that corruption you have on top because they've been there forever. Yep. So what you were saying, two things. The first one, like uh, between Reagan and Trump, all this time, I think, especially now, people's, people and just governments start worrying about stuff that doesn't really matter and doesn't push the needle forward, just like keep us busy with some bullshit mm -hmm. instead of focusing what actually matters, which is the economy, which is business how how we live and then the second thing is uh what you said with the age for example retirement you know they're forcing you to stop working however for government there's multiple multiple people that are over the retirement age but somehow they can still do even probably more responsible job than if you were i don't know a store clerk you, you retire 60 something you got to retire so so tell me how did you meet roger stone well, I admired Roger from a distance for a long time, and I, I happened to meet him on Instagram back in 2018 
Uh, I saw his page. I saw that people were writing very derogatory things about him and his wife and his family. So I wrote a few comments underneath there defending him. And uh, he actually reached out. He, he uh, DM'd me and on Instagram. He said, hey, you know, thanks for, you know, what you wrote. It's, you know, I'm getting shellacked out here without, for no reason. And uh, we struck up a friendship there. And then he said, look, I have a place in Manhattan. And uh, I'd like you to, you know, when I come back to New York, I'd like you to have dinner with me in uh, Nidia. And I met him and his wife, Nidia, and uh, that we really, like, really became close right then and there. You know, Roger's Sicilian like me. We have a lot in common. I mean, if you're around Roger, he's the greatest. I tell you one thing. He's the greatest mind I've ever met. I mean that, that he's really smart. I've never seen a guy that smart. He's very on his toes about anything, not just politics. Remember, Roger's not just, you know, the guy who's friends with Trump. I mean, this guy has gotten five presidents elected. He's been involved in five successful presidential campaigns. Nixon, Reagan twice, Bush the father, Bush the kid, and Trump. That's the five campaigns he's been involved in. Not to mention all the numerous senators and congressmen and mayors and uh, even uh, sheriffs he's gotten elected. The guy is a genius. He's brilliant. But I understand that people think he's a flamboyant guy and he's said some crazy things and they didn't like what happened. They try to put him in some scandals and to this day they still hit this guy for nonsense. I know, I'm there all the time with him. I know his family very well. Edie is almost like an aunt to me. His kids are great. One is a nurse. The other is a cop like me. I see Roger for Roger, not the guy everyone else sees. He's a great guy who's not only an honest guy, but as a friend, he's kind of been like, he's more like family to me. And... The advice he gives you and the things he tells you and he tries to, you know, bring some something to the table because he's telling you, look, he's giving you other angles that maybe you don't you don't see. That's what he's very good at. He's brilliant. I mean, this guy could get anyone elected to anything. He's politically a genius. He he could see moves ahead. Of but unfortunately, his own trial, right, when he was persecuted, and I was there for that. I was there for that, and uh, that was a complete setup. And I, I realized then I was really questioning if I was on the right team anymore because I didn't do that as a cop. I didn't see anybody in New York City doing it. I see that now. But he was railroaded in a way which, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know what I can say about that. That was the worst case. I've. I. I it's the worst court case I've ever seen in my, my life. And I was involved in many with my own. Uh, I saw it rigged one way. No matter what defense, no matter what you argued, none of it mattered. You got struck down because he was Roger Stone. And that's where you learn about guilt by association, yep. uh, all this, you know, guilt before innocence. You have to prove it. And they were just, you know, and then the witnesses that came up there, they were lying off there. I mean, to this day, I remember being there. I saw one guy in person I was like, I want to jump from the back of the room and tell his lawyers, hey, this guy just said X, Y, and Z. I just saw the email. That's not what it was. It was like 
one-sided. You had to be there to witness it. It was like, oh my God. And the sentencing was worse. I remember at the sentencing, the judge was referring to Roger as if he was Donald Trump. She mentioned it twice when she was like castigating. I mean, it was ridiculous. It went on for like an hour. You you lied to cover up for Russian collusion, and but that's not what that wasn't. What, he didn't lie about anything. He didn't cover anything up. So it was like, what am I watching here? And I saw a man like, I, and, and it was very hard to try to keep the entire family together. And I was very positive for them, and I was there for them at a time when nobody wanted to be. It was very little. It was very few people. And by the way, uh, President Trump and Roger. Other than before the, the this whole trial and everything, they didn't speak until the day he was commuted from his sentence in July in 2020. And that was on camera. So they didn't speak for that long. There was no in-between. There was no gophers. There was nothing like that. He wasn't talking to him. The lawyers wouldn't let him do it, and it was just not going to happen because he's being you know, prosecuted for something they're saying that he's involved in or whatever they were trying to say. So... They didn't speak. So this whole thing of, you know, the, another guilt by association campaign they're doing on MSNBC, it's all a fugazi. He didn't speak to him at all. The next time he spoke to him was he saw him and he bumped into him at a, at a buffet line in Mar-a-Lago in late December. And that was the second time he saw him inside of like two years. They spoke very briefly when he commuted his sentence and then again in late. And then after that, I believe, he didn't speak to him until well after Jan or March of 2021 or something. So this is the time frame. So for anybody who keeps assuming things, this is what I know. I mean, I was there. So the, I, I saw a guy that they literally took and tried to break in every way possible. And uh, I admire him because he had a lot more strength than let's say I would have. I mean, I, I went through my own investigation, as you know, with everything, because they try to guilt by association campaign. And uh, he took it a lot better than, let's say, I would. Because I, I was literally, there were times where I was just ready to put my fist through a wall. Because I knew I didn't do anything, but yet I was being, because I saw it before with him. And now I said, how did I end up in this scenario? And I didn't do anything. At least with Roger, I could understand they had four different people lying to be uh, witnesses in his case. In my case, you didn't have any witness. You had nothing. There was nothing there other than we don't like your friend and we think you're guilty because of this. That's all they had. It's a theory that was never proven. And uh, that's why I'm saying Roger's a great guy. Roger's my friend for life. As you know, when he's Sicilian, it's usually like that. That's how we are. And uh, he's loyal and I'm loyal and we're loyal to our friends and our little circle that we have. And that's how I, how I see it. People may not like him. You just don't know Roger the way I do. You don't sit there and have the dinners that we go out and all laugh with our friends and the jokes he makes. He's a great guy. But, but some people are going to take a shot because that's just the way it is. I understand how it works. It's uh, people are envious. People are jealous. People are not your friends. People are fugazis. People are just cloud chasing. That's not me or Roger. So And, and that's what I take it. I think... Hopefully, his strategy or, or something he thinks of or what he's been saying lately in the political sphere 
penetrates through, let's say, President Trump's head as he's running for office again right now. And, uh, you know, our guy could pull through and somehow get back in the White House. And then maybe things will change, hopefully for the better. And we could have some answers for the last seven years that we've been basically persecuted for no reason. Yeah, our fingers crossed. And it's also amazing that you have such a good relationship with Roger. I'm sure he's also like a mentor to you, you know, with all his experience and deep understanding and just like so much wisdom. Like this yeah. guy has literally been working with the wise presidents. Man. Yeah, he's exactly. A wise man. He's a wise man. There's a lot to learn from him. Hopefully you will be able to get him on the show. Yes. That would be great. Yes. A I will do my best. We're going to get some wisdom for the viewers as well. So now going back to New York, all the positive stuff. Now tell me, I'm from Poland. You know, New York, it's always been like a dream. I had the pleasure to visit like three times. What are the top spots to visit? Uh, well, uh, pizza needs to be number one. So if, you have, if you're in Manhattan, I would definitely go John's on Bleecker Street. That would be the number one place. Their pie is unbelievable. You have to sit down, so hopefully there's no line in there. Then you go right down the street. You're on Bleecker, you go to Joe's Pizza. That place is unbelievable. You can go, I would go to, let's say, Manhattan's got a lot of places. I I like a few other places, but then I would probably go to Brooklyn. I know a few people there. Table 87 on 4th Avenue. Actually, is one on Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn, and there's one on 3rd Avenue, Table 87. They were on, I don't remember, they were on a Shark Tank. They have a cold fire pizza. The pizza's unbelievable. You can actually buy it frozen too. It's just by a slice. Okay. The pizza's much better in, in you know, when you get it in person. Of course. You want squares? Da Vinci's on 18th Avenue. Unbelievable Sicilian pizza. Probably the best out of the best. Trust me, you'll you'll know what I'm talking about. J and V, two blocks away. That's another unbelievable pizzeria. It's been there since the 60s. Everybody tells you to go to Spumoni Gardens. Their food is really good. The pizza, you know, I'm a guy that says, you know, would I go there? Would I have this slice? Yeah, but I would definitely go to Da Vinci's 20 times over before I would have pizza at Spumoni Gardens. Not to say Spumoni Gardens is bad. It's just I like, I prefer Da Vinci's for whatever reason. So you can go to Spumoni Gardens. Bay Ridge has a few places. Nino's is unbelievable. Uh, you go up to the Bronx. I've been to a place called Pugsley Pizza. It's right, it's right in Little Italy there in the Bronx. It's off of there. It's an old school joint. What I mean is it's an old horse stable that became a building, like a pizzeria. They built it. You know, they had the rear end. They still kind of have the elements of that. It's been there forever. Those guys, I know them. They're very good. I love their pizza. I used to go there all the time. I was in the Bronx. That's a spot you have to hit. Uh, I used to go to a couple places in Queens or close to Howard Beach. We have uh, New Park Pizza. That's You have to go there. Uh, there is... Who is that pizzeria? It's right there's already a lot of spots. There's People a lot on of one trips. I don't think they can hit all just, of them. This <laughs> is, I'm, I'm telling you where to go. And it, uh, Staten Island was, I lived there. You have to go to uh, 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 Ciro's Pizza, Joe and Pat's. That's, you have to go to there, there in, in Staten Island. Uh, there was also, uh, there was a Nino's out there also, I believe, in Staten Island. 
also excellent. Palermo Pizza, that's in uh, South Shore. That's also excellent. Excellent. Now, when you go into other areas, pastries, cannolis, my I favorite. I love cannolis. My all-time favorite because I'm from 18th Avenue, and they're kind of related to me, and that would be Villa Bati. The best cannoli cream you're ever going to get because it comes from Sicily. I, I was there. I was basically born in, born there. I was born around the block, so I grew up around the Alimo family who owns it. They're excellent people. They actually have a place also in, in uh, Virginia. You have to go to Villa Bate. They're world-renowned. That's the number one place. Go to Little Italy. Go see my friend Baby John, Cafe Palermo. He's the cannoli king. They call him that for a reason. He also has a restaurant across the street. I would go in there if you have to, you want to eat. It's called the Pasta Boss, right across the street. Unbelievable. This guy makes, he has a world-renowned chef in there. He makes unbelievable plates. You have to see. It's like some kind of special sauce he puts on a pasta. You got to go to Pasta Boss, okay? And Cafe, Cafe Palermo. If you want the best cappuccinos I've ever had, up the block, Cafe Napoli. I used to hang out there all the time. All the time, I used to go there. That was my favorite spot. Cafe Palermo, Cafe Napoli. Napoli would have the uh, cappuccinos. He also makes these excellent dishes. I go there for lunch and have like the seafood there. Unbelievable. Trust, trust me, go in there, tell me you know me. It, they'll take care of you. And then finally, in the Upper East Side in Manhattan, there's only one place that if you're a conservative, even if you're a Democrat, you'd be welcome there. Just don't wear the hats at the bar. The Beach Cafe. My friend Dave Goodside owns it. Tell Dave you know me. He's going to tell you that you have to try one thing in there, and that's the Stone Burger. The Stone Burger, of course, we all know who it's named after. And the burger is a, it's a burger with a fried egg on top. Now, his meat, and you have the burger. He is something about the burgers at Dave's place. He has top-end stuff, so he's always going for the best meat that there is. So each time you get it, you're going to say, wow, this tastes better than the last time I had it. If you have two stone burgers, the third one's on Dave, but you have to eat the two in front of him. You can't say, oh, I want three stone burgers to go. That's the deal over there if you go to the, if you go to the beach cafe. It also has a nice place outside. You can eat outside the place. You can eat inside the place. And, of course, there's drinks. There's espresso there. That's where you want to be. It's on East 70th and 2nd Avenue. Cafe, uh, uh, Beach Cafe, Upper East Side. Tell Dave you know me. That's a good rendition of my little rounds of where I went in Brooklyn and uh, Manhattan as far as pizzeria goes. Also, I have a pizzeria you should go to. It's an all-time favorite. If you go in Brooklyn and Prospect, it's called Smiling Pizza. It's on 9th Street and 7th Avenue. Going in, you tell them you know me as well. It's uh, that's a place I grew up in. I had a sentimental value because I know the owner is uh, very close to my father, and I spent my whole childhood in there. And his pizza is also very good. His sauce is excellent. Try the chicken parm, you you, you won't regret it. Um, so now all of you heard you have a whole ass trip, culinary yeah. trip around the boroughs of New York. Yeah. Uh, and they all checked by the veteran and, and the food aficionado too. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay, so tell me what is next for Sal Greco? Well, we're gonna see. 
how this lawsuit proceeds forward. As you know, I do have that litigation, like I stated, against the New York City Police Department with facts of this case that keeps growing by the day. I mean, uh, you know, I was terminated because they used that, you know, that, that provision of patrol guide, which is the book that governs the NYPD. The provision stated that you cannot wrongfully or knowingly associate with someone who is reasonably believed to have engaged in or likely to have engaged in criminal activity. For them, they stated that, for me, it was Roger Stone. They didn't like my political uh, affiliations. They didn't like that I'm affiliated with MAGA. They didn't like that I know Trump, but none of that stuff. They hated that stuff. That's what they charged me with. They didn't like, they said I was Roger's security. I never was. They said it was uncompensated security. I made it up. So then a couple months after I sued them, when they finally terminated me, they brought Cardi B to the police academy. And Cardi B, who's a criminal, uh, she was hobnobbing with all the cops, all the supervisors taking pictures. That's in direct violation of the same rule that uh, I violated, they say, no? Sounds like it to me. So their police commissioner at the time said that she didn't know who invited her or how she got there. The mayor came out and said, we don't discard people, and she was invited there, and too bad he wasn't invited there. So this case is very interesting just on that fact alone. But going forward, we now have a new police commissioner, Ed Cabano, I keep mentioning for a reason. He himself is involved with criminality. His brother is a criminal. His brother is a convicted criminal. He was a sergeant in the NYPD. He was fired because he was a criminal. Okay? He wasn't charged at that point. He wasn't convicted in that case. He was convicted in another case a few years later. Okay? So then they're involved in this place called Concerfrito in the Bronx on Commerce Avenue there. They're involved with a character named Jimmy Rodriguez Jr. This guy, he was arrested in the late 90s. He tried to run over his wife, took a couple of days for him to turn himself in. And all he ever does is open up his places and his numerous articles in every place this guy opens that he's involved in narcotics. There's narcotics in and out of the place. There's always drugs. There's shootings. There's all these people. The MLB baseball players weren't allowed in his place for a couple of years. It was actual rule. He's hosted people like Fidel Castro. He's hosted people like Hillary and Bill Clinton. All these Democrats seem to go to his place. Seems like one political party goes to one place, and that's Concerfrito. So Concerfrito, though, is owned by Ed Caban's other brother, who was also on the job, Richard Cabana, retired. So Cabana is tied to a place that's known to have a guy that was a, involved in criminal activity by the book and also narcotics that's flown out of every place he's ever had. In fact, he's on YouTube by some guy named Cuban something, Cuban master or something. He actually stated that it was a cocaine buffet in his old place, Jimmy Bronx Cafe. And now they're all situated at Constafritos Weekly, nightly, whatever you want to call it, hanging out with felons every day. Eric Adams, Ed Caban, the police commissioner, the chief of department, Jeffrey Madry, numerous other cops that are all associated with all this little crew here. And they're all pictured with felons, hanging out with felons, hanging out with the guy who owns the place, the co owns the place with Richard Caban. Ed Caban is there. There should be SLA questions going on, SLA, because you need a, a liquor license. And I don't know if Ed Caban's involved in that. So my case is grown and sprawled because 
I have evidence that the police department went to Contra Fritos and it was in the magazine, the NYPD magazine that the police commissioner that was there that's on my lawsuit, Keyshawn Sewell, who left the police department resigned, she's still in a lawsuit. So she'll have to answer for, did you even know about this place? Because your magazine where you're now the police commissioner stated the NYPD was there having a party. So you're having a party at a drug-prone location slash felon hangout. And what was I terminated for again? So you see how the case is sprawling and has many different aspects. They could go in many different directions. So if Eric would like to talk about things and maybe we, the law department wants to call my lawyer, we could talk. Or we could end this where it was going to go to trial. Eric Adams will be on that stand in the hot seat in a year where it's probably going to be an election year. And uh, if you're ready to go the whole route, Eric, that's not a problem because I'm sure everyone would love to know about how you are allowing your police commissioner and your police department to hang out with felons in front of you, but you fired me for saying that my friend is a felon, even though they're pardoned, and that my relationship with the NYPD would be corrosive if I continued as a cop because of it, but your two your police commissioner prior never fired me. No, but she fired me. You never fired her for allowing Cardi B at the police academy. And now your current police commissioner is basically involved in a drug-prone location where you hang out every day with him, and there's felons all around you, and I guess that's okay. How does this work, Eric? Because it only be one standard. There can only be one rule. There can't be one rule for Eric and one rule for everyone else. And only Eric Adams can answer this question. So that's the main focus for me is what's going to happen here. And I'm looking to expose everyone that's involved because this kind of behavior, this kind of stuff needs to stop. It's a double standard. That can't go on. You, and then, of course, my case led me in front of the January 6th committee. Thank you, NYPD. They used Fugazi subpoenas. They used an administrative subpoena. They wrote narcotics. Then they admitted that I was never on narcotics. I don't know where the narcotics came from because if you don't understand this out there, narcotics is the gateway to all your records. They could survey you. They could look for your easy pass, or not your easy pass, your, uh, well, down here would be different. It's not called easy pass, but it's like your, your toll records where you go with your car, your phone records, your internet records, uh, your social media records, all your records if they claim, you, if they claim you're on narcotics. The, pe the people that are investigating me, they're also on my lawsuit. They're in other lawsuits, and they did the same thing there. So we have a problem. It seems like there's a pattern in the New York City Police Department that Ed Caban runs and the city that Mayor Eric Adams runs. Corruption seems to be the common trend here. And uh, we're going to see where all of that leads. So I think, I think that's one interesting area people need to keep their eyes on is my case. Where you can, if you want to you know, help me out and support me, you go to salgreco.com. There's a donate button there. There's also merchandise. I'm selling merchandise. It'd be nice if people start buying some shirts and seeing what I have there. There's uh, mugs. There'll be other things in the future. But, you know, we're trying to build my brand here. And maybe in the future... I'll be sitting down and doing one of these uh, 
shows myself, maybe even for a day in Miami. I'm aiming towards that direction. I also love this highlight league I keep telling you about, which is where I met uh, Ben. And uh, the highlight league is something I I have a vision and a few I see a future in, and I, I hope I could uh, help move this uh, league uh, you know forward. Uh, I recently brought Roger for the first time there, and he actually was invited for the second time that he was there. He was invited by the owners of the team, so it's a sport I see growing that has a lot of potential, and I hopefully can have a hand in helping highlight move forward because it's a fun few hours that you spend it's a fast sport and uh it's a great time there obviously everyone that sees me go there i'm in love with this cafecito business it's not espresso it's cafecito it's a different thing but it's very like you have one you need two you need three you need you just keep going you have to stop yourself actually from having got cafecitos and uh the food there's good food there. There's a good atmosphere. People, they're all happy. They want to take pictures with people. Even the players, after the game, come out and greet the fans. It's 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 a great place to be. Now you can bet on it through DraftKings. So there's a future in Highlight and maybe be a future with Sal Greco and Highlight. So that that's another avenue I'm looking at. And you never know what the future may hold, Ben. Yeah, 100%. I like to get like I said, I like to get involved in many different things. I like to have a hat in many different arenas, and uh, we'll see where I hang it. Finally, you know? Okay, Sal, so the name of the podcast is Better Globally. We explore art of becoming better, better in every way, in health, life, relationships. So according to you, what's your number one tip to become better globally? I think if you stay true to yourself and be honest, that's the only way forward. People can see when you're a fugazi right away, you need to be honest and straightforward. I was always like that with people. Some people might take it the right way. Some people may take it the wrong way. And others are just fugazi themselves, and you'll have to navigate through that. But to be better in life is to be honest and be true to yourself. And that will reverberate around everyone around you. And if you stay positive and always have a good outlook on life and keep that positivity around you, it'll grow. You'll grow and everyone around you will grow, and you'll have people gravitate towards you. So that's how you would work on an overall scale especially if it's going to be a global, you know, if you want to do Im- impact the globe, we'll say. And uh, that, that'd be the perfect way to even market yourself or market your friends. Because always, it's life's not about you. It's about the people around you. You always want to make other people better. So it's like, that's, that's how I see it. Me winning or whatever my case, settling, whatever the case may be, it's not, not just for me. Yeah, there's a lot that happened there, but you know something? What about that guy behind me that's happened? This happened to them. You know, that's the whole point. You want, to wake everyone, you want to wake everyone up around you. You know, it's like uh, God always, if you read the Bible, and this common trend in the Bible is always believe in God, you know, listen to God. But God never said, you know, God is almighty. So you would think God, God could just come down and do it himself. But that never happens, does it? It's up to you because he wants to see everybody else be better than the next person and be the best of themselves. And that's how you affect the world globe. Be the best of who you can be and how you can affect others around you that do the same. And never say, I'm better than this guy, I'm not better than that guy. Just be better than who you think you could be or who you were. And just keep going up the chain. And you'll affect everything around you and hopefully affect even somebody maybe that's, you know, miles and miles and miles away from us right now. 
Okay, one last thing. I have a little gift for you. Ah. So now I'm making this a tradition. Everybody that comes on a podcast gets a gift. So here's it's one. A, gets a gift. Token of appreciation from me to you. Thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you. Let's see what this is. Uh, let's see. Ah. Seems like a book. Seems like it. <laughs> Meditations, Marcus Aurelius. You ever heard about Marcus Aurelius? Uh, I don't know who it is. This is the first I'm seeing this. <laughs> okay. Have you ever heard about Stoicism, the philosophy? Yes. He's like the, I mean, I wouldn't say he's the founder of this whole philosophy, but he's like the greatest mind when it comes to this. I know you are going through a lot and I think like Stoicism and Stoic, um, mentality will help you get through those turbulent times. Just like I wrote in your dedication. That's it. So. I definitely recommend you read it. It's honestly, this is the greatest book I think I read. I haven't even finished it, but honestly, it already touched me after reading a couple, couple pages. So I hope it helps. And yeah, thank you for coming on for the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you. It was an honor to be here. Follow a day in Miami, by the way, on uh, Instagram. And uh, my Instagram at the Sal Greco, same on Twitter. Ask, exactly. And Truth Social at Head of the Table. And uh, follow me on the SalGreco.com. You'll see all my adventures as I move around life. And, uh, you know, we'll see how fast and how slow or I can slow things down or, fat, or speed things up in my life. All right. Thank you guys for listening, for tuning in. Stay tuned for the next ones and see you soon.